Hello and welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on April 28th, 2022 from Sumter Original Brewery. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. This episode features our 10th live taping episode. That's right, we got back on the road for the first time in two years and brought the Associated Press's Meg Kennard and Mayan Schechter, the state newspaper's politics editor, with us to Sumter Original Brewery on Thursday, April 28th. And if you didn't make it out to Sumter, or maybe you did and you want to give us a shout, you can do so by giving us a ring at 803-563-7169. Okay, now without further ado, we bring you our live taping from Sumter Original Brewery. Take it away, other Gavin. Hello and welcome from Sumter Original Brewery. How are we doing, Sumter, South Carolina? That was me. (laughs) That's right, we have a rowdy crowd here for our first live taping in more than two years. We are back, folks, and we are in Sumter. And to celebrate, we brought two of our favorites, our favorite friends of the pod. We have Meg Kennard with the Associated Press and Mayan Schechter, politics editor at the State Newspaper. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to be here. Yes, Super it's a great to place to be. Guys, remember the last time we did a live taping, Meg, you were with us down at yes. Holy City Brewing. Oh, my goodness. March 10th, 2020, right before something happened, I think, in the state and <laughs> country world. got a little dicey. A yeah. little crazy. That's so, a long time. Uh, we're back. Of course, there's a lot of things happening right now in the State House and on the campaign trail, which we'll talk about both. Uh, Mayan, we're going to start with you. We're going to talk politics. We're going to start talking about State House politics, including the rapidly changing leadership that's happening in the House of Representatives. I think someone important lives in this city, this town, who might be showing up later. It's a big deal. We'll talk about him in a moment. And then we'll talk to Meg about how they're, uh, we're rapidly approaching the upcoming primaries on June 14th. So we'll start with Mayan, talking about what's going on in the State House, and then jump over to campaign trail with Meg. So of course, the biggest news of this week, slash today, was the election of Sumter's own Merle Smith, becoming the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now that's just a coincidence that we're in Sumter, and today this happened, nothing happened there, but uh, Mayan, our listeners know that this transition has been, coming, has been coming ever since we got the news that Speaker Jay Lucas was retiring. Uh, after eight years. Tell us about why this transition of power is so important, what people should know about it, why they should be paying attention to it. Right, so obviously huge day for Sumter, huge historic day for Sumter. Uh, The Speaker of the House is really the most visible person that the House of Representatives have. While they're uh, a voting member, uh, they hold a lot more power than just your average lawmaker. They can decide uh, what committees lawmakers get assigned to, which is a very big deal. Uh, So you want to usually stay on the good side of the Speaker. Uh, They can decide uh, what committees bills go to, which can mean that they survive or die. Um, But they really get to, you know, kind of lay out the priorities for the chamber. Um, It's a big deal because the absolute domino effect that we're seeing in the House uh, in the coming years is is potentially massive. We could have a very different South Carolina House of Representatives over the next two years. Um, Merle Smith is becoming Speaker at a time when, like you mentioned, uh, Jay Lucas is leaving, the House Majority Leader is leaving. Uh, Republicans feel pretty confident that they may be able to flip even more seats than they did in 2020. You have this emergence of this House Freedom Caucus that we still don't really know how that's going to shake out. And then you and I were just talking to some lawmakers uh, this week who uh, are being challenged within their own party. And so they too could lose their seats. So you could just have a, a, just a dramatically different looking House uh, in the coming years. 
And Mayan, we heard from the speaker today, again, like you said, he's leading the entire house. There's 124 house lawmakers. Everyone has a house lawmaker representative up there. Uh, he had unanimous support from the entire house when it came to his election today by acclamation. What did you glean from Merle's speech when he got the purple robe, gave his speech there in front of all the members, uh, including what you're talking about, kind of maybe subtly addressing some of that transition with his own party? Right. Well, he talked about having an open door policy. He talked about being a leader uh, for both Democrats and for Republicans. He talked about the importance of building a consensus, which obviously, as somebody who is chairing the House Ways and Means Committee, passing a budget every year, you have to build really a consensus. We've seen in the Senate what that can look like when a consensus is not built. What, like this week? Uh, yeah, <laughs> actually. Um, and, and so he, those were sort of his overarching kind of goals. He did speak to the state separately earlier this week, um, our reporter Joe Bustos, in which he kind of talked about governing a little bit from the bottom up. He wants to be policy-oriented, but, mm -hmm. you know, Merle is not here, so he can't counter this, but, you know, with like any new job, you have goals, you have, you know, your priorities, and sometimes things change a little bit once you actually get into the job. Uh, you know, obviously Merle Smith has been probably preparing for this moment for a long time. He's held leadership positions before. He's probably well prepared than most who have just kind of, you know, accidentally maybe fallen into the job yeah. after their predecessor was indicted or something Bobby like that. Merrill. So <laughs> this is a much, much smoother sort of transition. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but certainly it kind of remains to be seen how he'll be able to sort of affect the change that he, that he wants to do in the coming years. And it's kind of interesting just to stay with this before we jump into some activity with the last two weeks of session, what bills might be moving forward, what we can expect. I want to stick with Merle for a moment because uh, he's not here, so we can talk trash about him. But being, that being said, you know, he's representing the Sumter area. His predecessor, Jay Lucas, representing Hartsville, the Darlington area, the PD, where I've worked before. So it's interesting to see that it's kind of, I know Sumter's not part of the PD, but it's simpler, similar in terms of that rural nature, that kind of different area. It's not Greenville, it's not Columbia, it's not Charleston. So it's that different outside of those big three areas that gives that different perspective and appreciation, especially when it comes to budget priorities and laws being passed in the right. state. And he talked a little bit about being from a rural community earlier. And of course, there's always conversations about how to invest better, right, in the rural areas versus the areas that are super fast growing. I'm sure we'll, especially given that now he'll be right at the top of the house, we'll probably see more of that investment come to fruition mm -hmm. um, in the coming years. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been told that Merle Smith is on his way, but, in, but before that, we have Senator Thomas McElveen in the house. There he is, folks. <laughs> He's not up for re-election right now, but he can still shake your hand and say hi. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Maya, let's switch gears really quick from leadership and all the transition going on there too, because of course, uh, Merle Smith was over the Ways and Means Committee and there's gonna be a new uh, chairman over that soon. We're gonna see a new uh, House Majority Leader for the Republicans too. All these transitions happening, a lot of things moving behind the scenes right now. But what can we glean, what can we see happening in the next two weeks? Last day of sessions, May 12th. What do we expect happening in the House and the Senate right now? Yeah, so I think one of the, the biggest pieces of legislation that we'll see in the coming weeks, actually next week, we thought it would happen this week, but we were, um, obviously that didn't happen, is medical <laughs> marijuana. Uh, that bill passed the Senate. Uh, this is Senator Tom Davis's bill. He's been working on this thing for about seven years. Finally got it out of the Senate. It's in the House. The House has made, the House 3M committee has made very minor tweaks to it. Um, so it's supposed to come up on the floor for debate next week. That debate is probably going to be one of the more interesting real policy debates I think that the House has had in a really long time. Um, but it's going to be a tough debate. Uh, I understand that there's at least one or two lawmakers who have filed 
hundreds. I've heard maybe a thousand oh, amendments. Okay. Um, we'll see if all those really pan out, but um, hundreds of amendments to potentially just kind of slow the passage of this bill. Uh, but you and I saw Senator Tom Davis in the, in the House antechamber this past week, and he seemed rather confident that this bill will, will pass. Yeah, seven um, years in the making, too, seven years. Right, and the Senate, of course, um, you know, Senator McElveen can probably <laughs> share his thoughts on this, but you all just passed the budget um, after what was uh, one of the more interesting budget debates that I have watched in my time covering the legislature. Yeah. Obviously, the big hang-up was that uh, $1 billion rebate, which cut into senators' uh, earmarks, pet projects, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we saw a rather uh, interesting, contentious back and forth about money for I-73, which uh, I don't believe came to fruition. Mm -hmm. um, so, but medical marijuana is really the big thing, I, I think, in the House. The other, and of course, I'm sure we'll touch on this, is election-related Yeah, we just saw some activity on that early voting election law, election reform bill. Uh, that will allow for early voting. I know right now everyone thinks you can still do early voting. It's basically absentee voting is what we have right now. You have to have an excuse to do it. But this bill will make absentee voting strictly mail and only, but you'll have two weeks of early voting instead at multiple locations in each county. Uh, and there are some reforms there too, but a very popular bill that passed the House and the Senate with unanimous support, which you rarely see, let alone with an election integrity bill in this day and age. Yeah, that's one of the few times where I've seen, well, we've seen a very contentious piece of legislation go through that and tax cuts in the House, which was amazing. Um, but yeah, so the, the Senate, uh, the House passed the election bill, it went to the Senate. The Senate, of course, amended it, um, not too much to the, to the governor or the House leadership's liking. Um, and usually at this time of year, uh, if a leadership puts a bill back into committee, that usually means it's dead. But Today we saw it, saw it somewhat resurrected. Uh, the House Judiciary Committee tacked it on to like nine bills and sent it out. So we could see that bill come back up on the floor. Mm -hmm. uh, remains kind of to be seen. We got two more weeks, so who knows? And I think we talked a little bit about the budget already. Maybe we don't need to go into the weeds on that, except what the House, the Senate did. But we can uh, really kind of almost wrap up here a little bit, Mayan, with what we saw in the Senate. We'll talk about the Senate right now in terms of putting that transgender student athlete ban bill on special order in the Senate. That got pulled out of Education Committee. Uh, it passed the, the House earlier in, in April, and then it got pulled out of the Education Committee in the Senate, and now it's set for special order, which means priority debate status, and this is something that has really become a big issue, uh, not only in South Carolina, but nationwide, even though it's technically not a big issue because over the past six years, there have only been four transgender student athletes who have applied for waivers, and only two have been granted. So again, you know, four, four students, two have actually been applied for and got it over the past six years, but apparently this is a very big issue for uh, House and Senate Republicans. What's going on with that bill? Well, well yeah, you mentioned that it's, it's on special order. So it will come up for a vote this coming week now that the Senate is, is done with the budget. Um, and the Senate probably has the votes to pass something. I, I'm sure it's going to be a very, very tough debate. I imagine Democrats, without having spoken to any Democratic senators yet, um, but have some amendments that they're prepared to file for it. Um, you know, this, this is an issue like uh, we saw legislation dealing with the teaching of so-called critical race theory in school. This mm -hmm. is an issue that has become of some concern um, to, to some lawmakers who have been pushing it for years. Obviously, the transgender sports bill uh, died twice in mm -hmm. committee last year, only to be born again uh, in, in the House again, be put to another committee and, and passed out. So uh, certainly, uh, 
it probably has the votes to pass. Them. And it's becoming an issue too, again, like we've seen nationwide as well, but you know, we are in an election for these House members, 124 House members are up for re-election, and we're seeing some of these issues actually being used in mailers and advertisements, especially these folks that have primary challengers. Uh, before we get to Meg, I want to just ask you really quickly, since you are covering the State House, about what kind of election challenges we are seeing for those Republicans specifically, uh, and what it's looking like right now. Yeah, well, I mean, dealing with this transgender sports bill, uh, you know, there are lawmakers who were against it, who are now putting out mailers saying that they voted for it when it came up for a house. There are a handful of Republicans that are in really tough primary positions. You know, you could consider some of these Republicans maybe to a little bit right of center, and they're being challenged by, uh, you know, new newcomers to the political scene who are even further to the right. Um, and we're, like we said, we were talking to one lawmaker who said that there is a potential for some Republican incumbents to lose their seats. Um, in this primary election. Of course, midterms are usually not as high turnout as presidential, so mm -hmm. there is the chance that they don't lose. Um, but yeah, I, I think even incumbents are in a really, really tough spot, at least some, you know, moving into the primary. Gotcha. Well, before we talk to Meg, and thanks for catching us up, Mayan, uh, we're gonna take a quick musical break. AT, that's your cue. And we'll be back right in two shakes. Thank you, Mayan. Thank you. Okay, and that, uh, that song was specific for Meg. She requested that Thank song, you. and now we're joined by Meg. Uh, we just heard a little bit about the State House campaign trail, Meg. Not something that you're following that closely, but you are following some big races, statewide races, congressional races, uh, races specifically. Uh, listeners will remember our previous coverage of former President Donald Trump campaigning in Florence last month for two big candidates he's backing, State Representative Russell Fry, who's challenging 7th Congressional District Republican Tom Rice and Katie Arrington, who's challenging first Congressional District Republican Nancy Mace. Uh, since, we've see, since then, we've seen those first quarter fundraising numbers come out. Meg, what are those numbers looking like? What, what, do you, what do you get from those? What do they signal in terms of what they mean for folks? I mean, at this point, of course, there's some polling that's being done, but fundraising for all of us who are watching at this stage of the game can be the best barometer for how some of these challengers are doing. The incumbents, of course, have been in the race for longer. So their first quarter is probably going to be larger since they've had, you know, all of that time building up. But in both of these races, in the first district and the seventh district, where we have Trump-backed challengers to both of these House incumbents, we've seen those challengers not being able to bring in nearly the money that the incumbents have. Just by going through the numbers, which, I mean, I'm a journalist, we don't love numbers, but here they are important. <laughs> Um, Nancy Mace brought in $1.2 million in the first quarter of this year, which for her, that was a, a gangbusters quarter. Mm -hmm. She was very proud of that. Um, and most of that, 83%, so almost a million dollars, came after the Trump endorsement for Katie Arrington. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're looking at really what kind of factor does this endorsement play in these races? Uh, if you talk to Nancy May, she says it actually probably helped her in terms of continuing to make her case um, that she's the best candidate even though she doesn't have that endorsement. Mm -hmm. In the seventh district, Tom Rice brought in $342,000, which for him was a really good quarter, um, bringing him to more than $2 million total. Russell Fry, his challenger, who has President Trump, former President Trump's backing, 
brought in $350,000. Mm-hmm. Again, neither of these challengers has been in the race for as long as the incumbents. Um, certainly Katie Arrington just got into the race in early February, so she really only had just less than two months really to be bringing in that money. Um, but for her money, for the $750,000 that Katie Arrington raised, half a million of that came in terms of a loan from herself. Um, so if you're looking at the money that she actually raised, it's significantly less um, taking out that personal contribution. Again, these are tea leaves. This is kind of all we have to go on at this stage in the game, really. But these two races are not the only ones where former President Donald Trump is aiming to play a role and where some of the candidates that have gotten his backing at this stage aren't really bringing in the fundraising that perhaps they would want. There could be a million factors for this. There could be the reasoning that the former president can't go on Twitter like he used to and just, you know, blast out to his millions of followers, hey, this is a candidate that I back and I think you should support. I mean, that's just one thing. There are a bunch of things that go into it. But for whatever reason, at this stage in the 2022 primaries, we're really not seeing a lot of those challengers bringing big bucks when it comes to, you know, their their House and Senate races. And we focus on Russell Fry and, and Katie Arrington because they are bringing the most money in those races, too, right. despite being some other challengers in those races. But, Meg, when we look at these challenges, uh, are there any big policy differences between these challengers, or is it really just they were Tom Rice and... And Nancy Mace were, you know, Tom Rice voted for impeachment. Nancy, Nancy Mace was very critical of the president after January 6th. Is it all just January 6th? Is that the only issue in this race right now? At least in terms of what the challengers are putting out there, that certainly seems to be occupying most of the space, taking up most of the oxygen. For Tom Rice, it was supporting that second impeachment effort mm-hmm. against former President Donald Trump, which came after January 6th. For Nancy Mace, it was a couple of different things, one of which being her very vocal opposition to the former president's purported role in what happened on January 6th. So those are the issues that in the seventh, Russell Fry, and in the first, Katie Arrington, are putting forth when they're challenging these House incumbents. But recently, I spent a whole day with Tom Rice in the seventh district, meeting with voters, having a fundraiser, doing things on the official side of, of his congressional role. And he told me, you know, when I talk to voters and when I ask them what they think about my reelect, they don't bring up January 6th. They don't bring up impeachment. He said they did in the aftermath of when it was still kind of fresh. But these days, he's like, you know, they tell me that they like what I'm doing for. And I mean, both him and Nancy Mace were really big Trump supporters, too. I mean, the voting records is pretty closely aligned with his priorities. So it's just that one very large moment, of course, but one that a lot of people are jumping on, of course. Certainly. Uh, but when you're looking at these races, you're just talking about the 7th, but the 1st Congressional District race, if anyone's paying attention to her, hearing, hearing little things here and there, it seems very heated. A lot of big personalities in that race. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that what, it's just going to be a knockdown drag out like we haven't seen in a while, it seems like. I mean, it really is getting a lot of attention for sure, clearly, of course, because former President Trump is playing a role. There have been some other former Trump administration officials who have been getting involved. Obviously, former governor and UN Ambassador Nikki Haley mm-hmm. has endorsed Congresswoman Mace um, in a single day. I think she raised about $300,000 yeah. um, with Nikki Haley, so you know, that's, that's a big deal. But on the other side of things, on the challenger side, um, Russell Fry in the 7th has backing from some Trump administration officials as well. Rick Grenell, for one, mm-hmm. um, who is an ambassador for the former president. So, you know, it's, we see these personalities kind of coming to the fore. And you and I have talked before about, is this really just a proxy war? Is this like the Trump 
you know, factor of things versus other people who might be running for president (laughs) in 2024. We don't know. Again, we're not sure. But, you know, there's there's a lot of interesting things for political nerds like us to pay attention to. And Meg, you're part of the Associated Press, the Global News Network. And of course, you know, nationwide, there's a lot going on when we look at these Trump endorsed races. Um, Is there anything that you're looking at, maybe other states that other candidates that he's endorsed in other states or any internal point that you've seen here in South Carolina that might be uh, giving you any indication about how things might be going with this? Not really an internal polling, but, you know, again, when we go back to the money, former President Donald Trump has continued to raise money. He has an awful lot of it, but he's not spending it on a lot of the candidates that he's endorsing. He's mm-hmm. made some lateral transfers, but really as of, you know, the, I guess, first couple months of this year, there were only a couple hundred thousand dollars really changing hands for federal candidates. A lot of those candidates are probably wishing that he would kind of you know, take some of his big (laughs) war chest and and bring it their way. One of the things that we've also seen in terms of some of these other races where the former president is wading into them, there have been some state officials, like in my home state of Tennessee, there's a state senator, Frank Nicely, who has been a a Trump supporter in the past. Um, But when he's asked, you know, what kind of a role do you see the former president playing in these other races where he's not on the ballot, but he's asking for your support for these other folks, He's like, nobody's going to come into my home state and tell me how to vote. Mm -hmm. Again, that's an anecdotal example, but that is something that even from former supporters and perhaps current supporters of the former president, that, you know, they're kind of waiting, how much does his endorsement really mean? Yeah, and that Georgia governor's race is one to watch, too. Absolutely. Uh, But Meg, speaking of governor's races and kind of wrapping up here on the campaign trail, we're talking about the governor, our governor. Uh, that office is up for re-election this year. Incumbent Republican Governor Henry McMaster is ex- expected to wrap up the nomination easily. I think there's one Republican challenger, but no big challenge like we saw before. Uh, but Congressman, former Congressman Joe Cunningham and State Senator Mee McLeod are vying for the Democratic nomination, mm-hmm. so we'll be watching that, cl- that race very closely. But what's been going on in that race? What have you been seeing? What's the campaigning been like? It's been a bit uneven, Mm -hmm. I think. I think that's fair to say. Clearly, former Congressman Joe Cunningham has a very high name ID, um, certainly in the first district, but I think it's it's fair to say beyond that, since he was the first Democrat in decades to flip a congressional district here in South Carolina for for his party. So he's working on building that name ID, but he's also brought in a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, His fundraising has been... Um, not commensurate with Governor McMaster, certainly, but in terms of of challengers of the other party, um, he has been bringing in the money. Um, But he's also been doing a lot of campaigning. He's been traveling to all 46 counties around the state, um, participating in a lot of other events, as we saw recently at a a Black Caucus gathering Mm -hmm. um, that hosted Reverend Jesse Jackson, also hosted um, Joe Cunningham. State Senator Mia McLeod was also there. So she is out on the trail. She has been raising money. Um, but when you compare the, the dollars kind of coming into these campaigns, hers are, are not quite where his is. His, his numbers are. Again, she is a state senator. She has not had a federal office um, from which to, to campaign, which he clearly did. So the, the name ID for her is, is kind of a, a bit different. But, you know, I, I think it is fair to say that we're seeing a lot from the Cunningham campaign um, in terms of things that they're able to do, which frankly comes from fundraising. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that really, those things go hand in hand when you're looking at a campaign's visibility and and what they can really do with that. 
Um, so, you know, we'll just keep on watching until say, yeah, what, what, what should we, we uh, be expecting? I guess a bunch of mailers in our mailboxes, <laughs> campaign ads. What should we be watching for in the next couple of weeks? I, I think in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to be seeing some ads of some description. Mm -hmm. um, again, that takes a lot of money these days to be able yeah. to get airspace. We're not talking like 2020 money. We're ta not talking <laughs> yeah. Jamie Harris and Lindsey Graham money. Yeah. Um, I hope. <laughs> that was. I think we're all still kind of recovering from from all of those ads, but I think we are going to see some more visibility um, in the closing days of this primary gotcha. campaign. Well, that's a lot of great information right there from the people closest to the action. That's Meg Kunar with the Associated Press and Mayan Schechter with the State Newspaper. Thank you both. And folks, stay tuned because SCETV will be announcing debate dates for several primary races soon. So we will be watching with you as well. So thank you everyone for being here and we'll take some questions. We will take some questions from you guys if you have questions about the State House, any bills going on. Uh, we have a microphone, so if you have anything you want to ask us, political related, we should be able to handle it. So, any questions? We also have a sitting senator in the house right here, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've noticed more and more the sound of silence. Mm -hmm. People don't talk politics anymore. They keep their mouths shut. Um, it reminds me of the nothingness, how it just sort of taking over the country. Where, from a journalist point of view, where is that coming from? It wasn't there five, six, seven years ago. I mean, people used to talk. Mm -hmm. I think part of what you could be seeing is something that comes out of that intense polarization that seems to only get deeper and deeper the further we go. I'm sure there's a million different reasons for that, but you know, when, when I think about the, like, let me just really hear your point of view. Let's sit down and talk through an issue. Those kinds of conversations that I know when my granddad was in Congress um, decades ago, that's the kind of stuff that even with other members, you know, that's how they would really get stuff done is just hearing each other out, just folks, you know? And I, I feel like now there are some people among us who are reticent to express truly how they feel about an issue or um, get into a debate because they just fear that it's going to be so nasty and there's not going to be any kindness or really understanding coming from the other side. And so they're just like, to heck with it. I'm not yeah. even going to engage. And I think that's a little bit different too. You know, when you talk about DC, you talk about that just hyper-partisan situation. Mm -hmm. We're not exactly like that in the South Carolina House of Representatives or in the Senate. I wouldn't say maybe yet, but it's almost like it could become that way uh, in some respects. But they're still compromised. Everyone still talks to each other. They still hang out and go drink together, talking about lawmakers and stuff like that. So there is that kind of camaraderie still there. But I think like Meg was saying, it's sometimes... You know, it's one camp or the other. It's like tribalism, essentially, at this point, mm -hmm. where you can't get a word in unless you're far right or far left. Speaking of the Who man of the hour, <laughs> Speaker-elect Merle Hello, Smith in the Mr. house. Speaker. Any other questions? We can also direct them to uh, <laughs> Merle Smith or Thomas McElveen. In the bill about marijuana, is there going to be any inclusion in there to protect farmers who actually plant this crop and not get paid? Because we've had several issues in this state where that cotton farmers haven't been paid, hemp farmers haven't been paid. So is there any amendment, any place in this amendment to ensure that if you plant this marijuana crop, you are going to be compensated? 
you know, I can't really speak to the specifics, but I assume since it's such a tightly written law, like the most scrutinized bill that we've been looking at in recent memory, that there has to be some protections there because only a, a certain amount of people will be able to cultivate this. Only a certain amount of pharmacists will be allowed to dispense this. So it's going to be very tight. So I'm assuming those folks should be protected. They should be getting paid. And I'm, I don't know if Senator McElveen can speak more that after that debate, but I think it's very, it's very tightly written. So folks will be appropriately compensated, I would hope. So we're watching. Again, if that bill does get passed and it does make it to the governor's desk and he does sign it, it's still going to be a long time for them to work through all this procedure and getting things set up. It's not going to be overnight, but I would assume that there's going to be a lot of ins and outs that they flush out. Cam. How's it going? Good. Uh, Two-pronged question here, also sticking on the medical marijuana topic. Very stereotypical, uh, long hair in a tie-dye t-shirt. I make no judgments. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, one, the thing that I've heard from Tom Davis and from his constituents, at least in the Senate, over and over on y'all's podcast and other places, is that they're, uh, it's so tight because they're trying to prevent the slippery slope to recreational. Uh, that's the phrase that's been used over and over. Um, I'm trying to understand why they would try and prevent that, because if you look at states like California, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington, the amount of tax money mm -hmm. that they've been able to rake in and put into other state projects has been exponential. I'm not quite sure why a like so conservative and uh, you know fiscal leadership would want to just leave all of that money on the table. Um, so if you have any insight on that, question two, this is something I've asked friends for years. What do you think happens first in South Carolina, liquor sales on Sunday or legal <laughs> marijuana? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I think when it comes to, um, you're talking about why they're not going to make it recreational. I mean, it's, it's been seven years in the making to get them to this point with medical, and it, that is a big fear, especially that it could be that slippery slope. And you are seeing people that we were surprised in the Senate that voted for that bill. A lot of people that are very conservative senators vote for that bill in hopes that it is very tightly written that it won't backslide into that. And I think the argument for not making it you know, uh, recreational is that we already have plenty of money coming into the state. We don't need to get it from that. And it's more of a morality issue than anything I would think than it is a fiscal. Yeah, I, the law enforcement lobby in South Carolina is very strong. Um, and the fact that it took seven years, I mean, that, that is sort of, if you, if you are trying to pass legislation that can be considered semi-controversial, um, but like policy, like, like medical marijuana, I mean, it's going to take time to pass. And to Tom Davis's credit, I mean, he has obviously worked with, I mean, across the aisle, across with his own party to narrow this bill as best he can just to get it passed. I mean, uh, the fact that it, this is the first time it's made its way this far after seven years, um, you know, yeah. it yeah. takes consensus building to and do well, that. And, yeah. and, you know, it's, and I, that's my concern. Is I'm like, well, why are they so worried that's going to backslide if it took us this long to get here? How can it be that quick for them to go to recreation, which I don't believe will ever happen? So maybe Sunday liquor sells, we hope. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but we can't even get alcohol delivery, oh, no. so I don't know about Sunday liquor well, talk sales. To, talk to Senator Dick Carpootlian about yeah. that. What about booze pops? No, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> Please want to do no. One, Please no. One other thing about the medical marijuana yeah. debate um, is, you know, you mentioned this, but I think one thing that we have to keep in mind, too, when we're talking about these issues is the, the moral arguments, mm -hmm. and there's, you know, the faith-based groups, law enforcement groups, um, evangelical groups that you know, I think we've all talked to just kind of in, in the midst of this debate who are very opposed to this. 
Um, and in South Carolina, those are very strong groups and, and strong factions, and that does carry a lot of weight. So when you talk about the argument of potentially this opening up, you know, or backsliding, or being a slippery slope, or you know, however, when those folks have a seat at the table and are part of the conversation, you know, in, in the South Carolina legislature, that there is a lot yeah. of possibility, I think, for you know, there, them to be heard and for it not to go that way. Yeah, and again, it's a very tightly written law. If you've been watching it, it's like, you know, you're not smoking, you're not burning leaf as they refer to it. You're just vaping it or you're using a salve or you're using a patch and you have to have one of 12 ailments. I mean, it's going to be a very, you know, thorough process. It's not like, oh, I have a headache. I can go get a you know, dispensary car or something like that. So any more questions? So we're having rebates, we're having tax cuts and the roads throughout the state and especially in Sumter County are abominable. Um, so I'm just wondering what the plans are there. Where is money going to come from to take care of these roads? <laughs> Do you want to talk to this man? <laughs> yeah, um, that's yeah. That's the big debate right now, right? In the, in the Senate, at least, their plan is 1.4 billion dollars more than the, the House plan when it comes to tax rebates, and they're taking money from different projects and things like that. I will say, I know Christy Hall over at SCDOT has really been putting the time in to make sure that. They are working through priorities. They have a whole 10-year plan. This July 1st, they'll be fully funded with the gas tax that they passed in 2017. So it's still, you're trying to redo decades of just neglect. So I think it's easy for us to say, you know, why don't they do more? And we, I mean, my God, drive around Columbia, drive around anywhere, it's all very bad. But you do see more and more activity. And I think with what they're trying to do with that American Rescue Plan dollars that they passed, I think like 400 and some million dollars for DOT, I mean, that's going to expedite so much more stuff. So I think we're really on the precipice of seeing a, a big, I don't want to say renaissance, but really a big push on some of these roads and infrastructure projects that have been, you know, long overdue. So somewhat of a silver lining, just with broadband too. I mean, $400 million for broadband from the American Rescue Plan money, which will close that gap. So, I mean, we're really going to change things in the next few years. And to be... I on the rebate issue, I mean, I haven't been, I don't follow the budget as closely as, as I used to. Um, that, you know, the, the, the Senate's version of the budget and the House's version obviously are different. They'll go to conference committee where they'll hash out their differences. I think it remains to be seen if the rebate stays in there or <laughs> I'm seeing a, a I'm giving, head I'm shake. A no. We're doing live play-by-play. -play. <laughs> From what I'm seeing on the field right now, it's a no. So, you know, and, and like I was saying earlier, I mean, there are a lot of uh, lawmakers, particularly senators, who are not uh, super about excited yeah. about the rebate themselves. I mean, people were saying, Locally saying during I regret voting for this rebate, something you usually don't hear happen no. um, toward the chairman of a, of a finance committee. Um, so anyway, I mean, that, that rebate may, may disappear and that money obviously will be spread out. Mm -hmm. All right, well, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you again to everyone who came out at Sumter Original Brewery to help support us and listen to us. And of course, our guests and all of our supporters. We appreciate it. We can't wait to get back on the road to other places throughout the state. Let us know where we should go. 803-563-7169. We might just end up in your neck of the woods. And you can also leave us a voicemail at that same number, 803-563-7169. We love hearing from you guys, especially those folks who couldn't make it out to Sumter. And you can also show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on iTunes. You can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. We're also going to have some fun little sound effects that A.T., A.T. Shires, our producer, he makes everything work. 
He makes it sound good. We love AT. I don't, I don't have any sound effects out. Okay, we have no sound effects. <laughs> Use your imaginations, folks. 